Hello, and welcome back to the Nourish Circle podcast. I am Lori Schwartz-Mudio, registered dietitian and host of this show. Thank you for joining us today. I am speaking to Anna Lutz, who is a registered dietitian in Raleigh, North Carolina. She is the co-creator of Sunnyside Up Nutrition, a blog and podcast about nutrition, simple cooking, and family feeding. Clinically, Anna specializes in eating disorders and pediatric family nutrition. She practices with a weight-inclusive approach and supports individuals in breaking free of diet culture for themselves and their families. We have a really great discussion today about division of responsibility, about family feeding. I really enjoyed my time talking with Anna, and I hope that you do as well. Once again, thank you for joining us today, and enjoy. Hello, Anna. Welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Me too. We were just chatting before we started that it's like, you know, we're getting to the end of summer and all that kind of fun stuff and how we're in totally different locations and we're in still in COVID if anybody's dating this, but they're, you're opening and I'm closing and then I'm opening and you're closing. <laughs> so, so true. Old still. It's so like nothing else. No. So yeah. thank you so much for taking time out of your day, because I know that we're all still like managing all of that outside of our normal work and things like that. So I just want to say thank you for joining um, and being part of the Nourish Circle that it to me is like a collective where we start to talk about all these different things that are nourishing us inside and outside and clients. And so to get started, I was thinking um, if you could just let us know of any privileges or identities that you bring to the table for our conversation today. Absolutely. Um, I am a cisgendered um, white female from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I come from an um, upper middle class family of uh, my parents when I was growing up were married. My father worked outside the home and my mom stayed home with us for the most part. Um, and uh, I still live in Raleigh. I left for a little while, but I'm back in my hometown. And um, I, I think I also have um, the privilege of, um, I have a st straight size body. I shop at you know, could shop at straight size um, stores and, um, you know, have the benefit of being able to take time off from work to do things like podcasts with you or to mm -hmm. go to continuing education. Um, and so, you know, I do think I bring quite a bit of a privileges to our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I think it's important to acknowledge that the continuing education part is such a privilege and to be able to have these conversations because I find that I learn so much from every conversation and am able to um, make my network wider. Right. And I so think that that's so, yeah, so important in our field of connecting with others that have similar practice beliefs or styles of work, um, as well as learning from others. I think it's so important. Um, and we often miss that as a privilege. I don't know about you, but I know our professional development that was covered by work was drastically cut in the last few years. Um, wow. And so wow. to be able to do a lot of professional development is out of pocket. And, um, and I think right. that that's a very key thing, right? When we're talking right. about right. being up so, to date and networking and all that. Right. And it's, um, you know, we have to pay for it and then we have to, we lose income, right? Yeah. So it's, you have to be in a pretty privileged position to be able to do those things. Yeah. And to leave your family or, you know, travel elsewhere and be safe traveling elsewhere. There's a lot that's really wrapped right. up into that, that 
actually, I, I don't think I've ever really sat down and thought about. Um, so you're a registered dietitian. Um, and that's kind of the world in which I met you from. We, um, we were talking beforehand that we've never actually met in person, but we, we feel like we have. Definitely. Yeah. I can't wait uh, to meet you in person one day. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> I'm always like, I wonder how tall people are because I, I view a lot of people from like the chest up on video screens. Right. <laughs> I don't know why that's my thing. I'm always like, um, yeah, it's just funny to me. And I'm like, I can't wait to meet and be like, I can like shake your hand. I, I don't know if we're allowed to do that in the new world, but I could. Oh, I could hug you, right? Like that would be so exciting. I know. I miss hugs. It's funny. I'm not a hugger. I've actually joked many times in my life that people need to live in hula hoops because I don't like people in my space. But even I, at this point, I'm like, I hug people when I see them. And people who know me are like, are you okay? I'm like, I know it's weird, but I miss you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. If I'm to the point of missing hugs, I can't even imagine what hugger people feel like right now. <laughs> um, my ability to divert today is very phenomenal. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so we have interacted quite frequently on social media and in supervision and in other entities like group talks and, and um, dietitian like link ups and stuff. Um, yeah. So I feel like I know you quite well, um, but I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about your history of becoming a dietitian, how you got into the particular paradigms that you work from and kind of how you found your niche of, of dietetics. Absolutely. Big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I love, um, I love it because it's, you know, I feel like each dietitian's path is unique. And um, I, I started becoming interested in eating disorders when I was in college. I think I grew up um, pretty sheltered. Um, I didn't, I didn't know of anyone who had an eating disorder growing up. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I went away to college. I went to Duke and it's a pretty um, high intensity place. And for the first time I really started, started observing just how people ate differently, what influenced that. And I became interested in that, in eating behavior. So I studied psychology mm. and then decided to go back and um, get a master's degree in public health, focusing on nutrition. And so I went into dietetics with the interest of working with individuals with eating disorders. And one of my first jobs was at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, DC. Mm. Um, and so I was one day a week working in their eating disorder outpatient clinic and the other four days a week working in their more general pediatric um, um, outpatient clinics. And so really quickly, I, I was realizing how differently I was trained with how to work with different populations and, um, you know, quickly learned about um, Ellen Satter's division of responsibility and, you know, kind of grappling with the fact that I was, um, practicing in a more weight focused way four days a week and then these other concepts of all foods fit and you know um you know that we work with with our eating disorder clients I was practicing really differently those other four days a week and so I really need to make, make a transformation you know ethically it felt so wrong and so then I um, became very interested in family feeding how we feed our children how we talk about food and I think about that as more of the prevention side of things, you know, preventing eating disorders. I think that's one thing that I hear a lot from dietitians who go through school and training and then work in eating disorders or just kind of don't 
feel that the weight normative paradigm sits well with them. It's like, I practice one way and then I practice another way. And then my personal ethics come up. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about maybe what, what you were starting to see that you started to kind of question the way you were trained versus the way you found um, worked more within your value system or your ethics system or what you're seeing is more effective. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was this kind of idea of, of weight being an outcome, you know, even with children of really kind of this focus on weight and, and um, with people besides the eating disorder clients that really, you know, there's this focus off of weight with the clients that had eating disorders and it, and it felt so harmful for there to be this focus on weight. It felt um, shame producing. Um, it also felt like we, you know, we weren't, I wasn't taught to think about social determinants of health and the family system. And, um, and that really, we needed to really take a step back and, um, and, you know, instead of creating shame in these families about what they were eating or how much that we need to be stepping back and focusing on, okay, what really, what really produces true health. And there just, there just was that rub, rub for me. Um, you know, but, you know, I really kind of go back to this um, idea of why are we, why do we think ethically it's okay to treat one group of people one way and the other group of people another way that we really need to step back and say, okay, what, what is health pr promoting for everyone? You know, how are we going to practice in an ethical way? Mm -hmm. So interesting that you mentioned the social determinants of health. It would, the social determinants of health were really embedded in my undergrad in nutrition. Wow. But still Impressive. very juxtaposed to diet and like weight normative practice. So we would take these great classes about the social determinants of health. And like, I joked that basically every essay I would add social determinants of health because I knew that the teacher wanted it. But then um, we would still talk about weight loss and, and um, how to do that. Like as dietitians, that was our, our goal, right? To, to teach people how to do that. And I remember being like, these two things don't seem to fit for me. Like, how do we keep putting them together? So I feel like I did get this base of knowledge of social determinants of health, but then wasn't taught how to put it into practice, I guess what I'm saying. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And I guess I should backtrack slightly. I'm just wondering for people who might not know about social determinants of health, um, yeah. would you be able to kind of just give a, I know they're very in-depth, but sure. Kind of yeah. Overview? You know, that we, we know that there are certain things that are more on a systemic level that can um, determine groups of people's health. And so we're thinking about food insecurity. Um, we might, you know, might be thinking about um, um, people experiencing different stigma, whether it's racial size, um, experiencing trauma as a child. And so there's lists you can, you know, Google kind of the list of the different social determinants of health that have been shown that people and the more more of those categories you've experienced, the more likely it will have a negative impact on health. Mm -hmm. Where I was trained more of, okay, individual behavior change. What can this individual do to make a decision, quote unquote, to decide to, you know, do something different to improve their health. When really what we, what we know, if we're really looking at the, the science, making these more system level changes could make a lot more of a difference. Yeah, we definitely fault the individual, not the society we live in. Right. Yeah. 
do you find that you work with families frequently and do. do you find that um when do you bring up social determinants of health and how those like without saying it obviously but and how they're affecting the family dynamic of eating versus probably what they're getting told possibly at a pediatrician's of you're not doing the right thing for your child in the way you're feeding them do you find that that comes up so I think it maybe it comes up indirectly that it's something that I'm aware of as a practitioner that instead of maybe saying how I was trained of you should eat this and not that I might be assessing more for food, food security or um, um, screening for trauma, history of trauma, you know, really understanding um, what this person has experienced is experiencing uh, and then going kind of from there. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe indirectly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, yeah. I was thinking that you're not, you're probably not going to say, so you live in this area and right. But you're going to know that, um, that what's happening in the area is probably directly affecting food and, and eating practices. Um, and you mentioned that you learned more about Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. I think you might be the first person that's mentioned this um, on the podcast. Wow. Yeah. So um, could you tell us a little bit about um, division of responsibility and how, how you implement that into work? Absolutely. So Ellen Satter is a dietitian. She's also a, a therapist and she's done lots of um, work and research around feeding children, as you know, mm -hmm. and she, you know, she's written several books. But um, something that she's well known for is the Satter's Division of Responsibility and Feeding. And most, you know, what I love about it is that for most people, it can be very calming. It, parents can feel supported by it. Their anxiety can go down around mm -hmm. how to feed their family, where a lot of messages around nutrition does the opposite. And so, um, you, you know, briefly, I'll just kind of explain for the listeners that what the division of responsibility of feeding says, <clears throat> excuse me, is that children have certain jobs and that parents have certain jobs and the parents' jobs are to decide the when, the what, and the where. So when it's time to eat, what's being served and where it's going to be served. And once a parent's done those jobs, they take a deep breath and they let the children do their jobs, which is to, to decide if and how much, if, what they're going to eat of the items offered and how much of those items are going to eat. And it creates a structure. I'd like to kind of equate it to like a bedtime routine that children do well with bedtime. If they have a structure, they know what to expect. And, um, you know, I think we, a lot of eating concerns has to do with parents or children feeling uneasy at the table or feeling anxious, you know, kind of dysregulated. And so the structure can kind of help with that. Mm-hmm. I love division of responsibility and um, it, it's interesting because my children are three years apart and I found I was more grounded in it in the second with my second than with my first and my second is a way more intuitive eater than my first because uh, with my I think a lot of people feel this way with the first is you're like ah, I'm doing all the things wrong and and I right. need to do this and oh my gosh like are eating enough? I think it was avocado at the time. Like all the babies needed. Avocado. <laughs> um, it's just like diet food, baby food, I think kind right. of cycles through. And, right. um, right. And I'm like, am I doing this? And then with my second, I was like, Oh no, like they tell me what they want. Right. And, um, 
to not override it. And it's interesting that I have found in my practice that you can speak to this in yours, that when I start to present this to families is it's very uncomfortable at first because they feel like as parents, they're not doing their job. Right. I don't know right. if you experience that as well. That at first, right. When they're implementing do yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's, you know, I think something that worries me sometimes when presenting this to families is that people can feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right. You know, like, oh, I've, I've screwed it up. I'm not doing it right. And, you know, I, I definitely don't think that's supposed to be the message of more, okay, let's look at this. What's going well, what's not, how can we, um, how can we tweak it? How can we um, make it so that the parents are doing more of their jobs, the children are doing more of their jobs. And there needs to be that responsive piece. And so that's another kind of buzzword right now, right? Is responsive mm -hmm. feeding. Yep. And, and, and so there has to be that, this is a structure, but there needs to be that conversation. But, you know, and I mean, um, you know, theoretical conversation, not actual, but between the parent and the child of, of, of feeding. And so, yeah. you know, it's a great structure and each child, um, it may need to be tweaked a little bit. There's a lot of nuance because of personality of children and parents. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget the nuance, especially when we're talking about nutrition, but particularly with kids. It's so true. And I think yeah. our whole society is missing more out on nuance because of how we get our information from social media, from mm -hmm. news bites, right? 24 hour news cycle. I think in so many areas, nuance is kind of going away, but yes. you know, we can just keep reminding ourselves there's so much nuance of this and yeah. um, there's not one right and one wrong. Yeah, we definitely have that binary when it comes to feeding children of this is the way the book told me or this is the way the social media yes. person told me. And if I let that quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, if I let yes. them do this, then I'm doing something bad that's going to kill them eventually. Like sometimes, I don't know if you find this, but parents get very big of that. They can't eat this. They can't do this. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And there's that wrapped up in that shame of I'm a, not a good parent if I do that and I'm, you know, I'm screwing up. I'm not doing my best. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah, I've even found um, being places with my children and um, a parent gives their child like a juice box and they turn to me and they're like, I'm so sorry. I don't do this normally. And I'm like, the kid's thirsty. Give them a juice box. Like, whatever. right. It's so, but I think that it's, we, we become very apologetic about yes. how and then our kids see that right and exactly. internalize it exactly yeah. and can feel our worry and anxiety about it right because mm -hmm. yeah you know, they're attuned to their parents they can feel that yes and I think a lot of times and I know this doesn't always happen but as children you're you trust the adults that take care of you in the beginning and right and think that they know all the things and do all the things right so if they are like mm, maybe you shouldn't have the juice box maybe I shouldn't have the juice box and I think that stays with kids right I think you're mm -hmm. right and I think they hear all these messages right whether it's um they, they hear the words or they feel them subliminally they they're hearing all these you know fear-based messages and that's mm -hmm. something I really hope is going to change yeah. 
Um, when you do a division of responsibility, do you talk about, and I'm thinking you do, but I'm not sure, talk about um, like family meals and the family dynamics at the table? Because I know that I've run into many times and we're going to move into eating disorders as well. But um, when I, I see eating disorder clients, they talk about, well, when I was a kid, my mom or my dad who had dinner with us didn't eat the same thing as me because they were on a diet or because they were you know, trying to lose weight or whatever. And so they started to equate the foods that they were eating as not being safe foods or good foods or foods, healthy foods, quote unquote. Right. Um, right. Do, you, do you find that? And how do you talk to parents about that um, in your practice? Because I'm not going to lie, that's something I struggle with. I'm like, you can't do this thing you're doing if you're trying to teach your child. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yes. Um, you know, I think that's common, unfortunately. Um, and, and so we discuss it, you know, with little baby steps, right? And so, again, I never would want a parent to feel like, oh my gosh, you're doing it wrong. But, you know, let's talk about the benefit of modeling, you know, the benefit of the people, the family members that are at home, can they sit around the table? Can we pass the food? I think that's a great just exposure, children passing the food. Um, and, and then, you know, I really try to be curious, why is the parent, why is the parent eating something different? And can they start to see the benefit of the whole family eating the same things? Because as you know, you know, parents just want what's best for their children. And so if, if we can start having these conversations that honestly are really different than the conversations that are happening other places, right? There's, it's common for a parent to be eating something different. And, um, and so it's a new perspective and let's talk about what that, what that might doing and what's doable, mm-hmm. right? There's, you know, there's, um, you know, I've worked with some families that say, you know, I just can't imagine doing that, but I can do this. This is the first step I can do. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's that yeah. the parents are eating at a different time than the children. Can we at least get everybody sitting together? Maybe they're eating different foods just at this point, but it, we're at least kind of um, having some more um, times where adults and children are eating together. Yeah, because that's a good role modeling time, right? Is the eating time. Right. Yes, exactly. You know, there's all there's, you know, research about family meals, but I, you know, I think a lot of the benefit is um, um, the, the modeling, seeing an adult eating, you know, what, seeing what a meal entails, what's in a meal, what's not in a meal, um, connection, you know, mm-hmm. just that, that connection so much happens over food. Um, yes. I think with our current climate of stress around food, fear around food, I think that's, we're missing that being able mm-hmm. just to sit and enjoy food and have a nice conversation um, because there's so much focus on what are people eating or not eating. Yes. You know? yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's yeah. such a good point. Um, and I think again, going through the pandemic that people have been in their homes and their stress is high. And food is one of those things that we try to quote unquote control because we feel so out of control in other places. Um, I found that in my practice. Yeah. I think that's so true. um, And I'm seeing a massive increase in eating disorders. Are you as well? We are, we are. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this past year, we've just seen such an influx of people needing treatment for eating disorders. And I think, I think what you're saying is so true. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all at home. Um, Children have very little 
or have had very little control over their schedules, who they see, um, you know, going to school, not going to school and food is a way to cope, you know, eating or not eating is a way that we as humans cope. And so it's, it's not surprising. We've seen this huge influx, but it's so sad. It's so sad. And um, I know both of our countries um, have had been hit financially as well. And so access to food has been harder and like even getting in line for two hours to get into the grocery store. I don't know whether it was like in Raleigh, but there was times where you're standing in line forever to get your groceries and then you get in and there's not much there or, you know, prices have, wow, skyrocketed of food here anyways. Um, And I think that that creates a stress around eating as well. I think you're right. And, and I know we've seen just a huge increase in food insecurity um, across the U.S. and, mm-hmm. and a huge need for peop- uh, families needing to access, um, you know, food, food banks and food in different ways. And, and children not going to school where they were getting at least two of their meals. Um, yeah. You know, that, you know, and so the schools have been scrambling of how to get this food to the families who need, who need it. Yeah. It, and it, it's, I, I don't feel like there's been enough conversation around that about um, the food insecurity, especially how it leaks to eating disorders, because um, I have found over the years that people who experience food insecurity as children do have, um, can have, sorry, um, negative relationships with food because of that experience. And I, I just don't think we're spending enough time Absolutely. talking about that right now. I think you're right. I think you're right. There's, you know, that link, I think it sounds like you've seen it in your practice and I've seen it in my practice. And also, you know, there's, there's research that links it. Dr. Becker mm-hmm. um, out of the, out of Texas has really linked the, that if experiencing food insecurity is a risk factor for developing an eating disorder. And like you said, it's not talked about um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, um, it's important. Yeah. And it, it so and makes me, sorry, go ahead. No, it just makes me think, so we're seeing this influx now, but I think we're also going to see continued influx years from now because more people are experiencing food insecurity. That's totally what I was just going to say. I was like, it's the three and four-year-olds right now that when they're 17, 18, I'm wondering what's going to be happening with their eating then. And I don't think we're talking about that. We're not doing, in my opinion, any interventions or preventative work right now to try and make sure we have these positive relationships with food moving forward because of the amount of stress right. all these kids are in right now. Right. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I keep saying we're in a pandemic right now, but the next 10 years is going to be rough. Right. I think, I think. Right. with mental health and with kids and eating, I just, <laughs> I keep saying that. I don't know. It scares uh. me a bit. It's so much. Um, and then I also think about the um, parents that restrict food, like, Oh, you can't have sugar. I hear sugar all the time. So I'm just going to say like, you can't eat candy or this and just being in that environment 24 seven, all the time. Um, How do you talk to parents that are like, they can't have sugar because, you know, they will die. I don't know what the reason is this week, but there's usually Usually something and it's always sugar. Um, Well, you know, I'll talk about that. What we know is that children that are restricted from certain foods will usually eat more of that food when the parent isn't around. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to really kind of, I like to use the words, let's zoom out and let's think about what the goal is over time. Um, You know, if you, you, 
most parents can be successful at not allowing a five-year-old to eat sugar, but what's going to happen when they're a 14-year-old and they're walking to school, they have some access to their own money. And so let's, let's just think about this from a more feeding dynamics, a more relationship with food and um, giving children opportunities to eat all foods um, and have those experiences where they sometimes eat too much and sometimes eat too little, because that's how we learn. Mm-hmm. You know, we learn much better through experiences, as you know, than um, someone telling us, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know I do. Oh, <laughs> I usually, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's okay if your child eats a ton of something and, and feels a little sick. That's, that's how you learn. Um, that's how they learn. Um, and so not everyone's ready for that. Um to start bringing sugar in, but we'll start having these conversations. I feel like it's easier if a parent has already witnessed their children, child, um, maybe sneaking food or binging on food that that's concerning to them. Yeah. And so then we kind of talk about let's liberalize different things. And that, yeah, that's a, usually it's a better conversation, easier conversation. Yeah. It's funny. I often hear from parents, they'll say, when we start doing that, you're a dietitian, right? I'm like, yes, yes, I am. And we're going to put ice cream in your house, like, or whatever it is, right? Right. And, and, right. Um, it's just interesting because I think there's also that preconceived idea of what a dietitian is. Um, yes. Right. And it actually makes me think my 13 year old um, was talking to me last night about um, concerns for a friend that's dieting. And she says to me, I don't think I've ever felt this way because you let me put ice cream on my waffles for breakfast. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, probably <laughs> like, but yeah. And, and she, everyone, she says, everyone thinks that's weird, but I don't think it's weird. And I'm like, Oh, there's sometimes she's like, I just want ice cream on my waffles. I'm like, go ahead. Um, right. what a smart yeah. Person. But he, even <laughs> at 13, it is realizing the difference in thoughts about food. Um, right. 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 And, and we've talked about how, you know, this is an age where I think your friend's bodies are changing and your body is changing and, and conversations might start, make, start coming up around diets and food and, um, and what people are doing about that. And we're trying to keep this open dialogue, but um, it was just the, yeah, other parents don't let their kids put ice cream on their waffles and now they're not eating anything. Um Right. And right. that's right. obviously extreme, but it, it, it is an interesting thing about how we talk about food when they're younger, how it's in pre, then in preteen years, it can really come in teen years. Um, I know you spend a lot of your practice doing um, eating disorder work. Um, and my understanding is it's uh, mostly with teenagers or adolescents. Am I correct? I, I do work a lot with individuals um, with eating disorders that are teenagers, also young adults. Mm-hmm. I certainly also see adults, but uh, I would say the mar- majority would be teenagers and yeah. young adults. So how do you work with them from a, a dietitian perspective? Because I'm always fascinated. Everyone does things a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, um, gosh, it's it really depends on yeah. the age of the person and the severity of their eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I think this work is so interesting is because we, we do it so differently, you know, Mm -hmm. each each is so individualized. There's no manual that I can just say, this is how you do it. Right. Um, But that's why I like it. Um, Yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if, if someone, if an, if a teenager is 
it has an, has disordered eating, but they're not, um, they qual- they don't qualify for a higher level of care. They're, you know, outpatient work and they're working with the therapist. Really my initial job is just to get to know them and to build yeah. rapport and to become a trusted person. Um, you know, I don't ever want to be just another adult telling, telling them what to do, quote unquote. And as you know, that's really different if we're worried about someone's safety or mm-hmm. they yeah. need a higher level of care than I'm working with the parents for refeeding the child. But, you know, if, if I'm working with a teenager that um, sees that they have a problem, they want to work on it, then we spend a lot of sessions, you know, getting to know each other, um, building rapport and me really understanding what's going on, trying to understand a bit about what their life is like. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. You are the one that taught me low and slow with practice. Okay. And I have held on to that for as long as I've known it. Um, because I think we're trained as RDs to jump in and fix. And yes. I don't think we can fix because people aren't broken, is my opinion. Yeah. Um, Love how you said that. Oh, Love thank that. you. Um, and, but if they're, they're not broken, I need to know what they are, right? And about them. And I think sometimes when we're just the food people um, is the way that I've heard parents kind of frame, but you're just the food person, tell them what to eat. Um, And we forget that building rapport and how important it is, particularly with teenagers who might not trust adults because of experiences that they're in or have had. Um, It's really important to kind of learn about them and get to know them and listen to them and their history and their story. Like stories are so important so true it's so true I think um you know I like to say if it's if it's just information someone needs they can they can google that right they can they're they're probably not sitting in my office if it's if if information would quote fix the situation um they don't really need to be seeing seeing me but if Mm -hmm. you know it's more than that it's it's a relationship it's talking to a trusted person it's um someone who understands nutrition, kind of um, um, seeing the whole picture and figuring out how that can be a piece of things. Yeah. And I think sometimes um, when we get the story, you find out that, not that there's always a moment, but like the moments that kind of led to the point of where we are, like the, I remember, I don't know why I'm so fixated on ice cream right now. Ice eating ice cream on this day and this comment was made. Or I remember my mom not eating ice cream on vacation. Or, you know, um, and and really kind of just listening to that and letting them say it out loud, I find sometimes can be like really mind-blowing. Right, right. Absolutely. And 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 someone not interjecting their commentary about it, right? Like, like, oh, that didn't happen or why'd you feel that way? You know, just being a neutral person who cares about them and listens and, um, and over time might point out some things. Well, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Exa- those examples that you can. Thank you. Yeah. And oftentimes yeah. I find that they go, yes, I have thought about it. And this is, <laughs> or, right. And it's like, yes. I, yeah, I thought about it and this is what happened. And then we, we keep going. Like I, I as well, like love this work because every individual is so different and how everyone kind of got to where we are is different. And you need to know the map that you were on before we can figure out the map going forward. I think. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. It's such, so uh, true. it's, I find it so re- rewarding, but difficult at the same time. 
the, the yes. work. Yes. Um, you also have been a very influential person in my um, learning about um, uh, the window of tolerance. And I can't, oh, good. oh my gosh, I'm like, I've read all the things that you've ever suggested on anything about it because I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. It makes sense to me on a level that very few things ever clearly made sense right from the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, I, I do because I, I felt the same way when I learned about it. I was like, this is what I've been missing. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. We don't get any training about this at all in our education. Right. Yet we are dealing with clients and other humans, like the fact that we're all dealing with humans means that we should know this, in my right. opinion. Um, right. But I was wondering, um, I, I wouldn't be me if I, I didn't get you to talk about it a little bit. Um, right. If you could talk a little bit about uh, window of tolerance, what it means, um, how you, why it's so important in our work. And um, yeah, I could just probably sit and listen to you talk about this for an hour. So whatever you want to include, feel free. Fabulous. Well, I love talking about it. Um, and so we'll just, you know, just starting with the window of tolerance is, you know, talking about our nervous system and, you know, that we're, we all have different reactions to stress, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times the way I was taught was you're either, you know, in fight or flight or, you know, or you're okay, right? Yeah. And so, but what we've learned now is there's, there's more, it's more complicated than that. And so we all have our window of tolerance where we feel safe. We can be, um, in, you know, we can be relaxed. We can have a conversation with someone. We can look at someone in the eye. Um, you know, our, our um, heart isn't beating fast. That's our window of tolerance is when our body, our physiology feels safe. Above our window of tolerance, that's what we think of as fight or flight. So someone might experience a rapid heart rate. Um, they might feel on edge. It might feel more kind of like pe people might name it anxiety. Um, so that's fight or flight. That's, you know, a, a bear jumps out and your heart rate goes up and you can mm -hmm. run very, very fast from the bear. Below our window of tolerance is freeze. And so that's more of um, feeling like you can't move, you can't get off the couch. Um, you know, you, you might be super tired. And so that's that that's that freeze where if um, that's sometimes how we react to stress is absolutely going into freeze. People who experience trauma, their window of tolerance is smaller. And so they spend more time out of their window of tolerance, either above or below. And how this all relates to eating disorders um, is that eating, eating disorder behaviors can help us feel more, more regulated. Um, it can kind of put us in our faux window, can make our body feel like we're safer. So someone who may be kind of stuck in fight or flight all the time, you know, either um, certain eating behaviors, certain exercise behaviors may help them feel better. It, it regulates them. And what I love about this whole model is that it's, it reduces people's shame, right? Yeah. Like the way I was taught was, you know, there are these eating disorder behaviors that need to be stopped. Right. And if you're doing them, you're not, you're not, you're not doing recovery. Right. And I love this. This approach is more, this makes so much sense. These behaviors have kept you feeling safe. They've gotten you through this very, all this, all this that you've lived through, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that could just, 
that just approach can just be softening, right? It reduces shame. People start to understand why, and then we can be curious of what else might be helpful besides these eating disorder behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. And, and I just, I want to kind of like tie in the family feeding because I feel like it's all connected, which mm-hmm. also gets me super excited <laughs> is, you know, when a child is out of their window of tolerance at the, at the table, it's really hard to eat right? It's, or it's really, you know, or you use food in different ways to regulate, or if a parent is out of their window of tolerance at the table, then the child is going to feel that and probably go out of their window of tolerance. And so the same model could be so helpful with family feeding, you know, Mm -hmm. what can the parent do to feel grounded? What can the child, what can the parent do to help the child feel grounded? Um, And so it's all intertwined. Yes. Um, I think that I have found that when we talk about being out of your window and it, trying to make, you know, using the strategies to make yourself feel better, so um, helpful for um, clients because they're like, oh, I was trying to help myself. Like I wasn't bad, quote unquote, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Something they I, were doing, make themselves feel better. Yes. Which I think makes sense to people that I was taking care of myself you know, and, and it spun into this. So I just need to maybe figure out other ways to take care of myself. Like it can help kind of shift a little bit there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Uh, it's why it makes so much sense. There's so many eating problems right now, right? right? Like this is a traumatic time. We are out of the window a lot. (laughs) We are out of the window a lot. So eating and exercise behaviors are a way to self-regulate. And so it makes a hundred percent sense that we're seeing this more and more. Yeah. And we, we aren't taught, I think, um, from a young age, how to self-regulate. I don't know if I, I just, I don't know how to put that in words. Um, but we're just, I find that a lot of, um, people will say to younger children, no, you're fine. Or, you know, you, you stop crying or no, it doesn't hurt. Just get up and go. Right. So you kind of learn to invalidate those things, which then I think you, probably come out of your window, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but then learn other strategies of making yourself feel better because you're invalidated. Exactly right. I think hundred percent. And I think it's actually super resourceful for a young child who's dysregulated and Mm -hmm. not, uh, you know, to, to, to find food as a way to regulate themselves, right? Like that's super resourceful for a little five-year-old to figure that out. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and we don't clap for them in that, like we do when, you know, you do the quote unquote good thing of whatever society says is good that day, right? Like I always say when we're teaching kids to eat when they're little, we go, yay, you ate the peas. Like we yes. stop that, right? Yes. Later, we should still be like, yay, you cleaned <laughs> up your shoes. Like I realize that that's, you know, maybe extreme, but we we stop doing stuff like that. And it turns into the, you didn't do that right. Or, you know, you're fine. Just do this. Or exactly. exactly. Um, so true. Yeah. So, so much stuff. Um, yeah. It's funny after you taught me about the window, I randomly will be like, I'm out of my window. I can't deal with this right now. And just say it out loud to everybody in my house. And, it's and they like, know what it means. I bet they know what it means now. Well, they, they just, they don't really know, but they know that, Oh, mommy's not going to react to this properly <laughs> or like in a way that, you know, it, she normally would like, I don't right. know today. We need to just not do this. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah. And I have found for me personally, um, I wrote a blog post about this that, you know, about that I lay on the floor laying yes. down 
brings me back. Um, and I just wonder if there's any other strategies that you know of that can help people kind of come back into their window gently. So another part I love about this, this model is that you can think about, am I above my window or am I below? And the answer to that question might determine what would be helpful at the moment. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, if you're above your window and that fight or flight for some people kind of coming down, it might be to sit under a weighted blanket or to lay on the, lay on the floor. Um, you know, everyone's, everyone's different, but learning, okay, what's grounding, what's, you know, what's going to help me come down. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm, I also like, I think it's fascinating that sense can, can do yeah. that. So smelling yeah. something that's grounding or even going outside in nature, just that yeah. can be super grounding. Um, and then so if you're feeling in freeze, t super stuck, you know, like you can't get off the couch doing something that's a little bit more activating. So that might be, um, pushing against a wall. It might be throwing a ball with someone or throwing a ball against a wall. Mm. It may be, um, pulling on a, like a, a yoga strap. I really like with my clients when I was seeing them in person, <laughs> um, to, to just pull on a yoga strap. So just a cord, they have one okay. end, I have the other, and then we're communicating, our bodies are communicating mm -hmm. and that can help someone come out of that freeze. And then thinking about smells that, you know, citrus is, is really activating kind of can bring us out of feeling kind of stuck. So you can play around with it, which is, yeah. That's cool. My brain naturally, I think, went to the grounding things, but I've never really thought of the activating things so much. And I have noticed in certain points in the last year or so where um, I've definitely been more in the freeze than in the fight yes. or flight and never really thought about those things. But in retrospect, been like, oh, do you know what? That's when I would say to my youngest, hey, do you want me to shoot pucks at you physically? Um, and it was just like the repetitive moment of just that movement kind of, yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about that. Um, that although sense. I will say laying on the grass outside is always to me, if the sun's out, not in the rain. I did it in the rain once. I wasn't cool. Um, <laughs> but um, I think I even did it in the snowbank. I laid in the snowbank. Wow. I'm impressed. But outside <laughs> always is more effective for me personally than inside. That, that makes Something sense. with the sky. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. We talked about a lot of stuff. <laughs> we did. And it was so fun. And you could tell we both get super excited about these topics. I know. Um, I'm like, I could keep yeah. going. Cause I'm like, well, we could do this and we could talk about this. Um, but I do want to be mindful of your time in life. Um, and you do a lot of, um, work, um, in like you offer supervision, you see clients, you're on social media, um, you write, you have a website that has awesome websites or recipes that I pulled stuff off of. Oh, good. Um, good. So I'm wondering if you want to talk about any or all of those things so that, uh, the audience knows where to find you. Great. So, uh, as you mentioned, I write a blog called Sunny Side Up Nutrition that I write with um, another dietitian, Elizabeth Davenport. She is a former professional chef, and so she loves to cook. 
I cook because I have to. And so <laughs> we're, a, we're a nice, we're a nice pair, mm-hmm. you know, so we write about simple recipes, um, family feeding, all the things you and I have talked about today. We also have a podcast that we talk about these same topics that we've talked about today on. And, um, and so that's at sunnysideupnutrition.com. And then my clinical work, I provide supervision um, to dietitians and work with individuals and families with eating disorders and around family feeding issues. And I do that um, at Lutz and Alexander Nutrition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love this work and I love connecting with you. And this has just been great. Oh, and I can say as a person who's done supervision with you, it is wonderful. And um you really helps ground practice. So if there's any RDs listening that are thinking about that, um, I would definitely strongly encourage it. So thank you. It, thank you. Thank you. Personally, for me, it's been very um, grounded. Grounding is the word I have. Um, and I often feel like I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and you really helped me feel like I was not. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And I, I appreciate that. And I've just loved us collaborating and working together. Oh yeah. And it's, um, I, I will say for anybody who knows me personally, and it does a very good job of tolerating my random, like, da, 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 da. um, <laughs> and my weird way of labeling things. <laughs> I love your labels. <laughs> I love them. I, love I have them. to like put things in the way my brain works. And I'm like, so this is the way this is. <laughs> some people think I'm bananas, but I never felt that way with you. So I appreciate that. I love it. I love it. It helps me too. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> so Anna, thank you so much for taking time uh, with us today. And I will put links to all your stuff in the show notes so people can click there and find you. Thank you. This has been so great. Oh, I'm glad. We'll I talk soon. It. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.